Hello, everybody. This is Shane Douglas Keene, and I'm here with my partner, Rich Duncan. And today we are talking with author Sean Hamill, who is the author of the debut novel, A Cosmology of Monsters, which I had sitting right here and somehow lost without moving. (laughs) So, Sean, how are you doing, man? I'm good. Thank you guys so much for having me on. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, we have, too. Ever, ever since I talked to you about it the first time, we've talked a lot about this. This is an exciting one for us. Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, go go right ahead. I was just going to say, I was listening to your Laird Baron episode earlier today and really enjoying it. So I'm a fan. Uh, thanks, man. And he was a great guy to talk to, too. We really enjoyed that one, too. Um, so let's uh, do this you're you're new to us and you're going to be probably new to the vast majority of our listeners just you know based on what i know about our community um so let's uh, just uh get to know you a little bit um uh, sure um do you do you want me to do like the the first day new kid at school speech <laughs> uh basically that's yeah, i like your analogy um, okay. I'll use that in the future because that's exactly oh, yeah. what I want you to do. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, I grew up in uh, Arlington, Texas. You know, it's a town right between Dallas and Fort Worth where the Cowboys and the Rangers play. Um, uh, I went to college at um, UT Arlington, um, got my bachelor's in English with a minor in creative writing. I uh, worked at a Barnes and Noble for eight years while I was in high school and college. That's where I met my wife and sort of decided I wanted to be a writer. Um, I, I got my MFA in uh, at the University of Iowa, the Iowa Writers Workshop uh, in creative writing. Um, and uh, I taught I've taught a little bit uh, some rhetoric and creative writing at the university. And now I'm living out in the dark woods of Alabama, and uh, I've been on tour for this book for about a month now. The book came out a month ago yesterday, so this is this is all virgin territory for me. Pretty exciting, though, huh? Oh yes, very exciting. I can't imagine. Um, you you know, Rich and I were just talking right before we called you. Um, we were looking at the back of this book. Um, you must have an incredible agent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've got an incredible agent, uh, and I also have an incredible uh, publicist, uh, Abby Endler at uh, Penguin Random House, um, uh, did a lot of great work, and so did Kent Wolf and my editor, Tim O'Connell, like they really uh, did a great job rounding up uh, uh, blurbs from some really uh, fantastic, um, you know, uh, writers and editors in the case of like Ellen Datlow. Um um, yeah, yeah you, basically, you've got a list of my heroes on the back of this book. So, yeah, they did a stellar job with that. Yeah, my heroes, too. Uh, they they asked me for my um, my dream list, you know, of who I'd want to blurb the book. And I was shocked at, you know, that, that we basically got all of them. <laughs> so it was uh, it was really uh, reassuring, um, you know, to, to see because the, they're seeing it even before, you know, uh, the blurb people are seeing it before any of the reviews have come out. So it's it, it it's nice to see some of your heroes at least giving the book a thumbs up, even, you know, if you don't know how the critics or the readers are going to take it, you know. 
Yeah, and it's kind of, it's hard to get Stephen King to say it's a good book, and he says about yours that he loved it. Um, yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine that must have just taken your breath away. Yeah, it did, actually. I remember um, when my publicist uh, called, well, she, she called me to tell me that he was going to read the book, that that was a for sure thing, with an eye towards giving it a blurb, but not promising a blurb, because he hadn't read it, so what if he didn't like it? Um, and she kept reporting back to me, you know, he, I think he was traveling a lot during that week. So like, but he kept emailing her to let her know, like, I'm still reading it, still enjoying it. And then she emailed me the blurb when it finally, uh, you know, whenever he finished the book and had a chance to think about it. And I was at work and, um, I've got my own office. Uh, so I went into the office, shut the door, sat down and I actually cried for a minute. Cause I, I was just so overwhelmed because, you know, like I think most of this community, uh, you know, the horror community, we've all cut our teeth on Stephen King. He's, you know, he's our second dad, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, I mean, having the guy who, you know, inspired me as a kid to want to try and write my own stories, like, you know, approve of my first novel was a and he's a huge influence on the novel, too. You know, just having him sign off on it was um in a lot of ways the high point of the whole experience so far. And it's been a, an experience with a lot of highs. But that, to me, I think is the the thing I'll be able to take to my grave is like I got it, you know. Um, yeah. yeah, you know you're the real fucking deal when you get that guy to put his stamp on your book. So, go ahead, Rich. Yeah, I was just gonna say, Sean. Um, I noticed like this is your debut novel, and when we read the thing in the back, it says that you had appeared in um, two different uh, magazines or journals. So I was just kind of curious about the origin of the cosmology of monsters and, you know, how did it eventually end up at Pantheon? That's, you know, that's a pretty big thing, like Shane was saying, the people that blurb the book, but also to have your, you know, debut novel come out on a big, a big press like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's and pretty, pretty rare for horror, too. Um, well, you know, whenever I... Um, I'd, I'd known since I was maybe 20 years old, I'd always wanted to write a novel about a family running a business. I originally thought the business was going to be uh, like a youth hostel because I had the idea while I was staying in a youth hostel in New Mexico. Uh, and I kind of carried that idea around in my back pocket for years. That was like the novel I was going to write someday whenever I was ready to sit down and get serious and write my John Irving, you know, book. Uh and then, you know, years later in my early 30s, I uh, I got into the Iowa Writers Workshop and then I got like the worst case of writer's block I've ever had in my life um, because I, I you know, I, I was a genre kid. I grew up, you know, reading, you know, Stephen King and Anne Rice, but I've gotten into this very prestigious program that's very famous for turning out authors like Flannery O'Connor or Raymond Carver or, you know, Paul Harding, you know, all the the you know Kurt Vonnegut and Philip Roth used to teach there you know it's like it, it it's got a reputation for turning out institutional writers and so the weight of those expectations kind of uh, weighed me down for a long time and I tried to write these you know sad little literary stories about bad breakups or or bad parents you know going through a divorce and I'd written this one story about um, a couple sort of going through a haunted house while breaking up. And the story didn't work at all. It was the first thing I turned in for workshop. It was really mean and small and petty and, you know, 
my the my fellow students didn't really like it and my my instructor Ethan Kanan was just like not having it at all but he, he you know he he didn't like the haunted house aspect of it um, first of all it, you know he was like dump the haunted house have you know but have them build a boat instead, like give the family a project. And I was like, build a boat. I don't know anything about boats. <laughs> uh, but, but another thing he said was, you know, double down on like the empathy, like make these characters that the reader is going to root for. If they just hate them from go, you know, I mean, th- there are good writers who can, you know, do a lot with that. Like Laird Barron, for example, can do a lot with a potentially unsympathetic character. But if you're the type of story I was trying to tell, he suggested I try, you know, being a little more emotional with it. And so I, I remember I had just gotten this dog and it was the fall in Iowa and I'm walking the dog in the middle of the day and kind of thinking about how am I going to fix this story? Like, you know, and suddenly I had this idea, you know, how do I make this more sympathetic? And then I realized like, Oh, this is, you know, that this haunted house idea could actually, that could be the family business in my family business novel. And from there, I was just off to the races. You know, originally it was supposed to be um, sort of a, you know, a more naturalist novel, you know, that would talk about sci-fi elements or horror elements. Sorry, not sci-fi. Jeez, I'm a little nervous. Um, That would talk about horror elements. But but when I turned in the early pages, uh, another instructor of mine, Sam Chang, she she liked them, but she was like, if you're going to write about horror, like write horror, like don't just talk about horror, you know, actually make the reader scared. Why else are you dipping your toes in? And so I, I just went for it from there and it, it all sort of grew out organically. So the monsters kind of started showing up like uh, mysterious things started happening and um, it all grew very organically. Um, you know, I'd been reading Lovecraft at that point too. And so I knew I wanted to use, you know, him as sort of the the, the wall that I could bounce my ball off of uh, to at least get the book going. Um, and it all just sort of came organically through the writing process and then the the very skillful editing process of first my agent, Kent Wolf, and then my editors, uh, Tim O'Connell and Anna Kaufman, who really helped get this book. You know, it started out as this doorstopper it was 220,000 words and the version that's published is like 100,000 so they got it down to like this very manageable propulsive story um they helped me basically carve out a lot of the fat so um yeah that's that's I guess the beginning up through publication oh uh, well as far as getting it with a major publisher too um I think I was lucky because again I came out of that uh like it just sounds like I'm, I'm humble bragging about it constantly, but it has a lot to do, I think, with why I got published where I did, which was I came out of Iowa and at Iowa, um, agents and editors from, you know, big uh, agencies and, and publishers come just to meet the students at this program, because like I said, you know, they, they tend to churn out people who win the Pulitzer Prize and stuff. So agents and editors want to snatch us up, you know, before we're too big to get on their list. Um and I actually had a lot of trouble getting because I was writing a genre novel at, you know, the Iowa Writers Workshop. So a lot of uh, agents and editors weren't super interested in, in representing me. But I went to this one meeting um, 
it was late in my uh, final semester at Iowa and I kind of entered a fuck it phase and I showed up to the meeting um, wearing a, a, a t-shirt covered in like DC superheroes. It had like Superman, Batman, Red Tornado, like Lex Luthor. It just, the whole pantheon, I think it was like a George Perez drawing or something. Um, and the editor stopped me partway through the conversation and she was like, you should reach out to Kent Wolf because he would wear a shirt like that. Um, and I, so I, you know, after I left the meeting, I took my MacBook down, you know, out of my backpack, sat down in the hall and, uh, found his email address, sent him an email. You know, he wrote me back a little while later asking to see the book or what I had of it at that point. And then, you know, two weeks later we were in business together. Um, and when the book was finished, um, you know, I, I, I think we got lucky one because I come out of Iowa. So that's going to get me on a big publisher. They'll at least read it. That'll move you to the top of the stack. But two, you know, horror's really been having a moment in the mainstream in the last couple of years, you know, like get out won an Oscar for, for, you know, best screenplay a couple of years ago and stranger things was huge. Uh, in fact, we sent the book out to bot potential buyers the weekend that stranger things season two, uh, dropped on Netflix. So it was like the weekend before Halloween. Um, and, you know, we, we, we weren't sure what to expect. Like my agent wasn't making any promises because who knows, it's kind of a weird book. And I remember uh, standing in the driveway with my wife, you know, the week before, um, before we sent the book out and just saying to her, there's no way this thing's going to sell. It's just too weird. It's not enough of a horror novel for horror fans. It's not literary enough for literary buyers. Nobody's going to want this thing. And fortunately, you know, she, she disagreed and she's been right about pretty much everything with this uh, whole process. So I'm just kind of listening to her at this point, you know, her predictions tend to be better than mine. Cause I always predict everything's going to go horribly. Um, and so, yeah, we, we got bites right away from, um, from a few different editors and we actually got to, to pick and uh, from a few who, who made offers on the book and uh, Tim O'Connell, I had just sort of clicked with right away. Like it, uh, there was, there was sort of like a kindred spirits. I don't know, you know, sort of like blind date that turns into like lifelong romance sort of thing, but with an editor and a writer. Um, and, you know, I, I, I couldn't be happier. I didn't realize actually until after I had sold the book how, um, how lucky I was to be with a big publisher because I started digging more into horror once I'd finished my book. And a lot of the stuff I like best is coming from really small presses these days. So, like, I realized, like, oh, I really, like, hit the jackpot here because so many of these great writers aren't getting the recognition they deserve because they're coming from a smaller place. So yeah. that's a long answer. I'm sorry. No, no, that's great. And, you know, it's funny because we always, you know, tend to think of these follow ups on the fly. But you said a lot of stuff that really resonates with Shane and myself, um, starting with, like you said, how just how many great authors are coming out of, you know, these smaller presses and stuff. But two, one thing that I thought was cool about your own story was, you know, you were at this prestigious, you know, writing uh, institution. And a lot of times, you know, horror is kind of having a resurgence as far as, you know, pop culture with like films and TV. But I feel like still even a little bit, you know, horror literature kind of has 
still kind of has a little bit of a stigma to it where, you know, bigger publishers, they might be a little bit more reluctant to take on those types of works. Um, I mean, there are some that are doing it, but unless they have, you know, kind of a big following. So what I really think is cool and kind of inspiring about your story is, you know, you were able to place, you know, your horror novel, you know, by your own terms, pretty much and, you know, get it out there, you know, as a new author. I think that's really cool. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, incredibly, uh, I feel incredibly fortunate and, and even still, like you said, with the stigma, like, you know, even though the book is coming from a major publisher, I think that the fact that it is horror, um, sort of, I wouldn't say it's hobbled it because, uh, you know, it seems like it's being well received and everything, but I think that that kept it from being considered for, you know, a lot of my friends from Iowa end up on all these, you know, big lists from like the millions or whatever saying like, these are the books that, you know, you need to read this fall or whatever. And cosmology didn't end up on very many of those. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that like sight unseen, it's a horror novel. So like, it's not, you know, necessarily something, you know, it showed up on a lot of the genre uh, site lists, which is great. But, um, but a lot of the mainstream stuff hasn't really, um, you know, paid too much attention to it. We're, we're getting a little bit more traction, but um but so I've definitely I had no idea because I was such a, you know, a fan. And, you know, you see that, you know, you walk into any chain bookstore and you see like Dean Koontz and Stephen King each have a beta themselves right next door to each other in any store. Mm-hmm. So I figured horror was big business. And it turns out not really unless, you know, you got in like in the 70s or 80s. Um, so, yeah, I, I know what you mean. Yeah. And um The other thing I wanted to touch on, too, was how you were saying, you know, about like the structure, about how it was like a big, a big doorstop, basically. And then they kind of got it to it sounds about like a little bit to about halfway, maybe. Yeah. Um, One of the cool things, and I don't know if this was always intentional, like in the early draft of the book. But one of the things, because Shane and I talked a lot about the structure, and I'm sure he has some things he'd like to put out there. But um, the one that I liked was the Turner sequences. I liked how, you know, they were fairly short, but they were able to, you know, account for these passages of time in a really cool and unique way without, you know, making it feel rushed or like you were missing something. I thought that was a cool touch, and I was curious if, you know, that was always in the draft or if that was something that came about later. Yeah. Yeah. That was always in the draft. I, you know, um, and a lot of these bigger, you know, family saga novels, you know, that are, that are like sometimes upwards of 500 pages or whatever, like they'll, they'll cover time in a much more, you know, uh, steady progression. And, and I knew from the get go, you know, I started out thinking when I was a kid that I was going to be a screenwriter. So, my I, I still think very much cinematically in terms of scene and and, you know, moment rather than huge stretches of time. So what I decided whenever I started writing this book was that each section would be centered. There would be a jump in time between each section and it would be centered around a different Halloween in uh, the family's life, except for the very last uh, section, of course. But um 
And I, I, I knew that there would be that jump. And I thought that would be an interesting way also to sort of keep the reader off balance because you're, you're, you're suddenly jerked forward in time and the status quo has changed. And so you kind of have to get used to the new status quo and you're not quite sure how all the pieces are on the board yet. And, um, but as I was doing that, the Turner sequences, um, they they were there pretty early. I didn't quite know what they were yet. Um, and that was one of the great things that Tim uh, helped me figure out. He was like, I love these. These are great, but we need to figure out what their purpose in the book is. Because they sort of emerged instinctively. Like the first one I wrote was actually the second one that appears in the book, which is the one um, with the older sister, Sydney, uh, and the dancing you know, the dancing sequence. And I, it just sort of came to me instinctively, like this voice started speaking and it sounded different from the voice that I'd been narrating the rest of the book with. And I realized it was sort of a tool to kind of do some more explicit horror than the book, um, you know, had done up to that point, but also to give you a look into the minds of the other characters because the book is narrated mostly from a per first person point of view uh, by Noah Turner, the youngest member of the family. So e I knew each one of these Turner sequences, I wanted to get into a different member of the Turner family's mind and also create tension that way by showing what they're struggling with, what they're worried about, what their, you know, um, uh, their own sort of monstrousness that they're worried about. And, also give the reader some information that at that point in the story, Noah doesn't necessarily have. So it was another way to sort of introduce some tension and um, uh, some foreshadowing into the story. So they, uh, they were, they were always there, but it was a question of figuring out like um, what exactly are we reading here? Cause originally they, they, it, they weren't as clear. And I think one of the great things about Tim is he, he's got no problem with like, um, you know, going a little experimental with it, but he also wants to make it as reader friendly as possible. And I think that's one of the great strengths he brought uh, to cosmology was sort of taking that weird fiction vibe, you know, that 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 cosmic horror vibe that you get, you know, in like John Langan or Laird Barron's best stuff, you know, that 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 I was sort of reaching for um, or Lovecraft's best stuff, obviously, and and sort of making it just a little more reader friendly, a little more story functional, uh, a little less, um, you know, David Lynch, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, still keeping some of that mysteriousness, but making sure that it all makes sense and ties together at the end of the story. And um, so I guess that's a long way of saying, yes, they were always there, but they're way better now than they were when I started. And yeah. And uh, I can't say they're way better now than when you started. Cause I didn't see that, but, um, I find it uh, what I f one of the things I find really interesting about those sequences is like you say um, for the most part Noah is uh, narrating the story in, in the first person but then sometimes you enter like at the beginning you enter into some of those it's kind of like where he starts telling somebody else's story in the third person and you get into their mind and it's kind of it's interesting to me the way you shape the narrative voices to suit the current needs of the story. Yeah, I um, yeah, the the uh, the first third of the story, uh, I guess, for anybody who hasn't read the book, you know, sort of uh, takes place before Noah's actually born. So the first two sections of the book, um, you know, are mostly told from the point of view of his mother. Um, 
And that, you know, that's something that I, I sort of had to let go of some of, I guess, my, uh, my grad school, um, you know, strict uh, college level creative writing rules of like, you have to stick to this POV or you have to be able to explain how this character would know these things. And when I started writing the book, you know, I knew right away that it was going to be narrated by the youngest child, but, and he was going to start the story before he was born, kind of like David Copperfield does, or uh, the, uh, in John Irving's novel, The Hotel New Hampshire, it starts before the narrator, who's also the youngest child, uh, is born, and he tells about his parents' courtship and everything. And I, I sort of just had to give myself permission in some cases uh, to, um, break that rule and just let Noah know some things because of the, 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 I guess it's a, you know, it's a weird problem, I guess, in fiction, the, that uh, it was taught to me as the point of telling. So like how far out from the narrative of the story is the narrator, you know, is he narrating something that happened yesterday, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And so my attitude was that, the Noah who's narrating the story knows a lot more than the Noah who's living through it since it takes place over 45 years. So I, I thought it was okay to give him access to a lot more information than, um, than maybe your average first person narrator would have at that point, because as the story goes along and gets more cosmic, uh, he has access to more uh, resources that, uh, you know, that are either implied or explicit, I guess. Um, so I, I knew, you know, that was another thing that I guess uh, sort of came together instinctively. Like I, I, I just, you know, it, I kind of just followed, well, this feels right for this section. This feels right for this section. And luckily, um, you know, with my agent and editors, like I was able to figure out how to make those choices make sense, you know, instead of them being like, no, you can't do this. This is against the rules. They were like, no, this is fine, but you just have to justify it. Make it make sense to me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's kind of interesting that um, I know you were talking about the early, you know, the early stages of cosmology and that you sent it out around the second season of Stranger Things. One thing that I thought of while reading this, and it's kind of funny because at the time, you know, I didn't know when about you had shot this, but your book actually precedes it. But the one thing that I thought of when I was reading, you know, the saga of the Turner family, it reminded me a lot of the way they handled the narrative in the Haunting of Hill House uh, TV show on Netflix. You know, I um, I have not watched it yet. I've been waiting for my wife to finish reading the book and she still has not done it. So uh, I, I've heard the book compared to the, the TV version of uh, Haunting of Hill House, and I am very excited to watch it. But um Unfortunately, I can't I can't speak to that comparison the way I would like to, um, you know, when uh, I, I don't know if either of you were married, but like uh, there are pretty strict yeah. rules about what I stream and when if it's something she's interested in, too. Uh, I'm lucky in that regard in that uh, like my wife, she's OK with horror stuff, but she's not quite as fanatical as I am. So I pretty much get to just watch stuff at my own leisure. <laughs> Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm I'm in the sh- I'm in the Hamel boat there. Did I pronounce <laughs> your last name? Oh yeah, yeah, you got it just okay. right. Okay. Um in that yeah, I have to be very very cautious about when I stream what and where I'm doing that at. 
Um, and that's with zero porn involved. It's just for <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's um, and and to be fair, you know, uh, it's the same. It goes both ways in our house. You know, she'll ask me beforehand, like, is this something you're interested in watching? And if so, she'll wait. And I I've sort of gotten to the point. You know, I'm doing a lot. Uh, I'm trying to do a lot more reading these days. Where most things, I'll be like, go ahead. You know. Um, and if it's something you think I'll like, I'm sure you'll be willing to watch it again. But yeah, there, there there's definitely a conversation around each piece of content uh, that we that we're both interested in. Yeah, we're the same way exactly to a T. Um, and I guess that's kind of how you, that's how you make relationships work. Yes. <laughs> um, and and that's some um, pardon the awkward segue. But um, I, fi- I find it interesting, speaking of relationships, the way you built that family, because you, you kind of started with an egg and, you know, kind of hatched it and made it grow because you, you started with that, just the onset of that seed of a relationship. And it kind of moves forward in time, partly with the use of those sequences and, you know, partly with uh, Noah's first person real time nar- narration. Um you build this 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 raw seed into a whole family, um, not necessarily a functional family, but a whole family. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm sorry. Was there? <laughs> there wasn't really a question there yet. <laughs> oh, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Sorry, I was just thinking about it going. Yeah, that wasn't really a question, but. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I lost my train of thought now. That is, that is okay. Um, I'm sure it'll it'll come back to you. Maybe Rich wants to jump in or something. It, while it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I kind of see where uh, Shane was going with that, and you know, I liked the you know the way you depicted this family throughout. And, you know, I like all kinds of horror literature, like the craziest, you know, monster-filled stuff down to, you know, more literary stuff. But for me personally, even though I like some of that stuff where, you know, it could be all about the monster, for me, I think that most of my favorite horror novels, you could cut out all of the supernatural stuff. And it would still be a good story. And that's what I get out of Cosmology of Monsters is, you know, if you take away all these darker, you know, more supernatural type elements and say even if you took those supernatural elements and you just made them normal, um, it would still be an outstanding book. And that kind of ties into your earlier comment about, you know, when you were at the workshop and, you know, it was kind of different because you were more of a genre fan and a genre writer, but I feel like you really succeeded with this book because it has a lot of great genre stuff in there, but also even if you just cut that out, it would still be a really engaging book. Kind of like uh, Stephen King. Like I like some of his more supernatural stuff, but to me, like my favorite King novel is Joyland. And a let and like a lot of people don't like his later books, but you know, I really like you know eleven twenty two sixty three. That's another one of my favorites. So I guess my question with all of that is, you know, what kind of like as a writer, what kind of horror are you aiming to 
write about and as more of a genre fan what kind of horror do you like so as i mean i would say i'm i'm very much in the same boat as you like as i you know um I, I think the reason people love Stephen King, I mean, yes, he's great at writing tense action scenes, you know, where sometimes, you know, when you can tell he's just in a white heat and you're turning pages faster, you know, than you can move your eyes just because you got to find out what happens next. But I think at core, what makes those moments possible is the, his extraordinary character work. You know, my my favorite, my two favorite Stephen King books, I mean, it, you know, is kind of the big one, but my favorites as I've gotten older, are actually his two big novels about marriage, um, uh, Bag of Bones and Lisey's Story. And those are really, you know, they're, they're more gothic, more, but, and the supernatural elements are there, but they're not nearly as intense. And it's more about the characters and the, um, their struggles. And I, you know, I, I think that, they're, they're, you know, it was one of the reasons I struggled reading Lovecraft is there essentially are no characters per se, you know, like they really exist to create this atmosphere of dread and, and these incredible revelations, which are, you know, really, you know, wonderful uh, when you get to them. But I always struggled with Lovecraft because, you know, you don't I didn't care about the people this stuff was happening to. So while I loved the ideas, the imagery, the the mood, like it was also just like, okay, but like, I don't care if this guy makes it or not. And, you know, for some people that may not matter, but for me, I, I think that's, that's the main reason I read. I want to get caught up in the lives of, you know, these people. I want to be in their hearts and their heads and see what they're like. Um, you know, and I, you know, it's the, the the reason you know like a, a Michael Bay movie doesn't really work is because like you know he he knows how to photograph stuff it's beautiful it's amazing to look at but like he has no real sense of of narrative uh, structure so like none of it n- means anything whereas you take a movie like Aliens you know the James Cameron's follow up to like the Terminator and you don't see an alien for like the first what hour of that movie because you know he's putting all the pieces in place. He's making it so you know who everybody is and, you know, what they're like. And you're, you know, you're learning to like these people. And so that when bad stuff starts happening to them, it matters. Um, And, you know, I mean, you can, you can joke about, you know, James Cameron's characters being a little cliched or whatever, but like it works at a basic, you know, functional level. And I think for me as a storyteller period, no matter what genre I'm working in, I think that, that's always going to be the thing um, that I need to be able to move forward with a story because, uh, you know, I've had some false starts with a, a follow-up to cosmology. You know, as I went through the editing process, I was already trying to figure out what's the next book, what's the next book. And I would come up with these really neat high concept ideas, but they, I, I couldn't find a character to hang it on. You know, I couldn't figure out why does it matter to the character that these things are happening. And so, you know, those go in the back pocket and hopefully someday the right character will show up. Um, and I've finally got a couple of things going now that I'm, I'm excited about because I finally found some, some characters who are speaking to me. Um, does that, does that kind of answer the question, I guess? Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. And yeah, and it's kind of, uh, you know, when it comes to what you were talking about, about caring about characters, that's important, even if it's a character you don't like. Um, Yes. Like, you know, I mean, like, even like Noah is both a likable character and sometimes he'll pull a dick move. 
Yeah. But you, but you still care about him and what's going to happen to him and what's going to happen to his family. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. No question there. I'm just just a comment. <laughs> no, I, 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 I totally agree. I think, um, you know, part of the tension, I think, in good fiction, you know, my, my favorite undergraduate uh, creative writing teacher said, you know, fiction's about what goes wrong. And one of my favorite books about writing, uh, Burning Down the House by Charles Baxter, is like fiction is about interesting people getting into interesting trouble. And part of the trouble that characters get into is, you know, inner conflict within themselves, like, you know, the problems within themselves. So, like, you know, I I think it's important to tell stories where characters are allowed to do things wrong, uh, sometimes drastically so, uh, because that's part of being human is we make sometimes disastrous mistakes, you know, uh, without even realizing it sometimes that we've done it or, you know, just being too hot headed to, to realize that we, what we've just done or whatever. Um, and that's something that I really like to see in fiction, you know, that to allow, uh, the characters to be complex, you know, my, uh, another thing that same professor said to me was, I don't have to like a character. I just have to find them interesting. And I, I think that, you know, I wanted the readers to connect with the Turners because I knew I was going to be putting them through a lot of hell throughout the book. So, like, I, I wanted them to want to be along for that ride and, and to root for these people. But I also wanted to give them a chance to, you know, make mistakes and, and do do bad things um, and, and to see, like, OK, how do we come back from that? Because a lot of the book is, you know, centered around the question of what makes us what makes a monster, you know. Is it actions? Is it nature? Is it, you know, nurture? Is it whatever? So right. I, I completely agree with you. Um, yeah. Um, and uh, kind of you touch on a lot of as you're building that family and these characters that you make us care about. Um, there's there's a lot of stuff going on there. I mean, you kind of got some identity struggles and forbidden relationships and some members' uh, lack of willingness to um, acknowledge something different and some members' willingness to let the outsider in. And um, it's kind of a coming-of-age story, but it's a family story. Um, And uh, that was kind of what I was getting at earlier is – was was that intentional, those dynamics that you built in there like that? I – that's a good question. Um, yeah, I, th- I think to some degree the book is sort of a, I guess, a, a mashup of a lot of my favorite uh, types of stories. So, you know, I've always loved the coming of age story. I've always loved the family novel. Um, I've always sort of loved that gothic suspense type of fiction, you know, the like I was describing in those two Stephen King books um, or, you know, in the best of Lovecraft Um So uh, it was another place where I was sort of, uh, you know, I was worried that the book was going to be too weird because of that, because like you said, there is so many different things going on. So it's sort of a hard book to describe in a a short period of time, or at least it always was for me when I was writing it. Um, You know, I I feel like I've I've gotten to hone the pitch a little bit on tour and everything, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, it was, um, that was the tightrope I guess I tried to walk was 
figuring out how to, I guess, incorporate all these elements that I was interested in using in my own fiction and finding ways to play with those forms, those structures, uh, and um, give them, uh, you know, maybe maybe a little spin that they hadn't had before because they were bumping up against these other genres that they didn't normally get to bump up against. Yeah, and that's kind of really what feels to me like it's what gives it that uh, John Irving flavor that King referred to. You know, you get the you get the literary flair from the development of all those different aspects and, you know. Oh, thank you. Um, so let's talk about, just because I'm really interested in, this is a subject I'm endlessly interested in. Um, like uh, Joe Lansdale's novel, The Thicket. I can't remember the exact line, but his very first sentence basically tells you everything that's going to happen in the book. Um, and it's one of the best hooks I've ever read. Yeah. And so then I pick up this novel by Sean Hamill, and I'm furiously flipping to my sticky note. <laughs> and the very first thing I read is I started collecting my older sister Eunice's suicide notes when I was seven years old. Okay. And that probably came just became a very close second to favorite hooks oh, I've ever thank read. thank you. Um, is that something that you've done a lot of, uh, studying on and thinking on and, you know, how you're going to grab your reader and keep and make them want to keep on turning the pages from that point on? That's a, that's another good question. Um, it's, that line was one of the first things that actually came to me about the book back when I thought it was going to be about, you know, people running a youth hostel before there were even monsters. Um. And that line was sort of just a gift from from the ether. Like it came to me, you know, and I stuck it in my back pocket. And, you know, whenever I finally found the right novel and plugged it in, it all felt right. Um, but it is definitely something that that I think a lot about. I was lucky to have that not that line to use in my first novel because I, I think it is the best hook I've ever written. And there, you know, I, I don't know if I'll ever write a better opening <laughs> sentence than that. I'm, you know, I've only got one novel under my belt. So, you know, hopefully I'll come up with something as good, but I'm also okay if I never do a better opening sentence than that. Um, you know, I, but, but there is definitely a sense of uh, wanting to make sure that the reader is engaged right away uh, wanting to make sure that they're never bored or wondering where something's going or, you know, getting off to too slow of a burn. I'm okay with a, a plot that moves sort of slow as long as I'm invested in the characters or, or in some aspect of it, like something, you know, that thread that's going to pull the reader along. And I knew, you know, I had a really great thread right there. And a lot of the book, um, was really about just laying out those different threads, you know, throughout, um, you know, but having that first one to lay down really helped pave the way for a lot of the rest of the, the, the book, because I knew I had the certain thing I was working towards that isn't the whole climax of the book, but in a lot of ways is the emotional core of it. Um, you know, the relationship between Noah and Eunice. Um, so I, I, I'm, you know, I'm, Definitely, you know, I've the the uh, so I've got two different books I'm sort of working on right now, and uh, one of them I've definitely got a, a hook for, and the other one I'm still looking for that hook. So, I 
I guess that's a long way of saying I don't know. My my hope would always be to start the reader with something they're going to be interested in, um, you know, right away to to not make them have to put in a lot of work before they get before the story gets good. You know what I mean? Like there there are those writers who who can, you know, get away with starting much more slowly. But in the age of Netflix, you know, you really got to grab people and hold them tight. Um so, so it's something I guess I'm keenly aware of as I'm crafting the new, the next thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, one thing that I thought was cool about this novel too, which I don't want to get too much into spoilers, but, you know, basically for anyone who hasn't read this yet, um, it's about a family, the Turners, and they're kind of, you know, haunted or hunted or however you want to phrase it by, you know, mysterious forces and one thing that i really thought was cool about this book was like you said you captured the emotional core with that opening line but um recently um our last guest daniel brahm we talked about uh ambiguity in novels and one thing that i liked about a cosmology of monsters was there is kind of a sense of ambiguity throughout like you kind of you know what's going on you know as the reader gets further and further through they start to you know see what exactly has been surrounding the turner family and you get answers as to what it is and you know all those other various threads that i don't want to spoil for anybody but there is this sense of ambiguity where you give readers enough to where they're really engaged and invested, but at the same time, it brings to mind, like, I can't really raise any of my questions without spoiling it, but it got me thinking, you know, like about the backstory to, you know, what was happening to them. And it's, you didn't need it in here, but I think it's cool that you kind of left it ambiguous so that readers could kind of fill in the blanks But it also raised another question, is a cosmology of monsters, it works as a standalone, but like, it kind of seems like there's this universe behind it. Would you ever consider returning to that universe or is this kind of just, you know, a standalone? I, you know, I, I would be happy. I've got an idea for how the story can move forward. Um, If the book does well and people want more of this world, I definitely have uh, an idea of what the next chapter is in in this story um and but i would also be okay leaving it you know as is um if 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 you know if it's a one and done you know i i don't i don't think it necessarily needs to become 20 books but like there i i do feel like i left that world you know with more things to say i spent a lot of time thinking about it and writing about it and i definitely took out a lot of stuff um that was another thing that happened in the editing process one of the big conversations was about how much to spell out for the reader and how much to leave ambiguous and there was originally a lot more of the mythology sort of laid out for the reader and we actually pulled back on it some um and I, I, I think it was the right thing to do um, because it, it did, you know, it was sort of stuff that didn't necessarily affect the momentum of the story 
um, you know, and it was another a, a tightrope we had to walk about how many answers about the nature of this this bigger universe do we want to give? Uh, how important is it to the novel? And you know, to to double back to the Alien franchise again, um, you know, Alien the original might be my favorite movie, and my my favorite scene in the movie is actually when they first go into the derelict spacecraft, you know, and they find the giant ancient astronaut with the chest blown out and it's clearly not human and you don't know what it is and the movie doesn't answer that question of course prometheus kind of came along and ruined that but i like to pretend that didn't happen um because i like to pretend i never saw prometheus (laughs) (laughs) i uh i because that scene is so mysterious and strange and interesting and i think you know, I thought about it all. I still think about it, even though I technically shouldn't know the answer that the you know director gave us. But I preferred the mystery. You know, I preferred not knowing, you know, what was the species? How what was their story? How did this end up here? You know, um, and I, I think that that can be a real gift to uh, an audience. Um, you know, I, I also really, whenever I was, yeah, I was just the right age when the movie Donnie Darko came out. So like my friends yeah. and I were all obsessed with it in like 2002 when it first hit home video. Um, and I, one of the things I really enjoyed about that movie was how it didn't lay, it didn't answer all the questions it raised. So like we would talk about it for hours and, you know, the same thing with like the, the revival of Twin Peaks or, uh, you know, some some of those David Lynch movies, um, to me, that that sense of of overarching mystery, that 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 uh, frisson or whatever it is that that you get in the best weird fiction, I think, in some ways is better served by not uh, explaining too much, by letting sort of some things remain out of sight, because what you can't see is always more frightening than what you can. Um, so it was a it was a tightrope. Uh, and I, I feel happy with how we walked it, but I would also be happy to find out that we sold enough copies that people want more of that world because I do have some ideas and some answers I can give. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm holding on to those just in case. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's funny you mentioned Donnie Darko because that was that's one of my favorite films because like you said it leaves things open and you can have discussions about it and that's what I liked a lot about your book as well and I think that you know that ambiguity it kind of taps into the reader's imagination and it kind of lets them run with it you know just in case and you know it's funny because I'm like you in that I like the mystery and the ambiguity but I'm kind of also like a greedy reader. <laughs> like if I'll read something where it leaves it ambiguous, which is what I like. But then at the same time, I'm like, man, I really wish I knew more about this or like, man, like it seems like, you know, everything works as a standalone, you know, with those kind of ambiguous books that I read yours included, they work as standalones, but it seems like Every time I read them, because I'm such a greedy reader, like I said, and I loved it so much that I'm always like, man, I wish there was a sequel. I wish there was a sequel. So there wasn't really a question, but I just thought it was funny because, you know, I'm like you and that I love that stuff. But then it also I'm like, man, I wish there was more. (laughs) 
Oh, I, I'm I'm very much that way as well, uh, to be honest with you. Like, And I, I think that's part of the pleasure of it is that those two contrary impulses at war, because as humans, we're naturally curious and we want answers. And, um, you know, I, I remember when the new Twin Peaks, uh, that revival that Showtime did a couple of years ago, you know, I was very excited. I was watching it avidly every week. And when I realized where it was ending and how it was ending, my first reaction was like, what the hell is this really like they, you know, and then like I sat on it and I thought about it and then I was like, no, that was probably the better way to go. And like the fact that I expected something clean and super explanatory or thought that was even possible was very silly of me, Um, you know, that, that I should have seen this coming from a mile away, but I didn't because like you, I'm sort of a greedy reader. Like I, I want to know these things, but I also really respect it when the artist doesn't just give it to me too, you know? So it's sort yeah. of liking the tease, I guess. Yeah. I'm kind of a, I, I'm sort of a greedy reader, but um, if you tell me too much, I feel like you're dumbing it down and that's an insult to me too. So you know, you want to leave the the reader some some work. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. To double back to Stephen King, there's that great quote in Hearts of Atlantis when the guy, uh, the when Ted Brodigan gives the kid a copy of Lord of the Flies, and he says, "Good books don't give up all their secrets at once." You know. Um, so I I I totally agree uh, with that. That's one of my favorite books too. Yeah, I love that one. Um, actually, both of those books, that and Lord of the Flies. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Lord of the Flies. I haven't read it since high school, but I remember it. It definitely left a mark on me when I was seventeen years old. Yeah, one that doesn't go away, huh? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of books, uh, just for fun, I always ask this. Rich is probably tired of it, but uh, what is your favorite book? My favorite book. That's a. <sighs> Hard one, huh? Yeah, um, I haven't thought about it in a while. Um, I guess it depends on what sort of, you know, um, thing I'm in the mood for. I've got a few different ones. Like, you know, I've read it probably three, four, maybe even five times, um, you know, but uh, I also love The Hotel New Hampshire by John Irving is a big one. Uh, Middlesex, uh, you know, another family saga uh, by Jeffrey Eugenides. I really love, Um, you know, I I can't think of a, excuse me, a single Anne Rice book, although I'm a huge fan of hers. But like I think of hers more in terms of series, you know, so it's hard to pick just one. Um, Trying to think if I've read anything recently that just like would be a contender for all time favorite, maybe the secret history by Donna Tartt. Um, Cause that's a, that's a hell of a book. That's a literary page turner. Um, and that's got a great like Gothic atmosphere to it too. Yeah. I think I'll settle on that one for now. <laughs> I think that's, that's the safest I think that's a, that's a good one to settle on. Like I, it's a, I should have said, what's your favorite novel today? Um, <laughs> but yeah, that, that Donna Tartt book is, I feel is probably one of the best novels that's ever been written really. Yeah. Agreed. Um, I mean, I've liked all of her books, but that one, that's another one that just like sticks with you forever. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of, honestly, right now, my favorite book of the 21st century so far is um, currently under my arm where it shouldn't be. And it's called a cosmology of monsters. Oh, thank you. (laughs) 
Um, so much. That book owned me. It's it's amazing to me when I see a debut like that, you know. And I think about how it must have felt to you as a, as a raw green author, so to speak, as far as publication goes. Having someone say, uh, "This huge publisher is going to publish your book, and Stephen King's going to blurb it," and um, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, but, it's oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say it's all been very, very surreal because, you know, I'm still working a day job. You know, I'm, I'm taking PTO from work whenever I go on tour, you know. Uh, so, like, there's definitely this weird uh, tug of war that, you know, between, like, you know, Clark Kent and Superman, I guess. You know, everybody at my job is really proud of the, the you know, it's a small company, so they're very nice and they're very proud of me for publishing the book and everything. Um, but the, it, it's just been so surreal and, like, it, it, there are moments whenever like it feels more real than others, you know, sometimes it, it, uh, I, I guess whenever I'm doing an interview like this or whenever I'm, you know, doing a reading or something, um, you know, or meeting readers, then it all feels very real. But then I'm back at my desk, you know, the following Monday and I'm like, what am I even doing? <laughs> like, is this real or not? I don't know. Um, so yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's definitely been an incredible, um, experience and it's exceeded all my, my hopes and expectations so far. Uh, so much so that like, I'm really eager to get to work on a follow-up before, you know, like I get cold feet about it because, you know, this book has been so well received. Um, yeah. And, you know, kind of circling back to that, huh? It's like I want to talk to you about symbolism um, because I think it, in a lot of ways it's a, an, a, an important aspect of the book in several spots. But at the same time, I feel like anything I mention directly related to what I'm thinking about would just spoil the hell out of this thing. Well, I mean, do we just want to put a spoiler tag and give readers? Yeah, I guess. Spoiler alert. Okay, so what I'm thinking about specifically and especially is the monster suit. Yes. Um, and I mean, that feels hugely symbolic to me, especially when you build the rest of the story around it and you kind of see where things end up going. And, you know, um, do you intentionally embrace symbolism a lot when you're writing? I think it's something that more um, if if I've got the idea to begin with, then yes. But like with the monster suit that actually emerged gradually, I realized, you know, it's um, it's one of those things like I, I wasn't thinking about too much when I was writing the book. I was thinking, oh, they run the haunted house. So obviously they're going to want to, um, you know, they're going to be playing characters in it. Um, you know, and I, I knew haunted house, haunted family like that. You know, that's pretty on the nose. But um the you know, I realized at a certain point, like Noah was always wearing these disguises. You know, the first time that you actually see him physically as a character in the book, he's, you know, dressed as Batman. Um, and so this idea of him trying on these different um, roles, you know, like superhero or detective when the little girl goes missing or, um, you know, just average middle American husband, you know, uh, not, you know. And then, uh, you know, realizing like, oh, this monster suit always fit better. Like that, you know, was one of those things, you know, I think it, it's one of those things where the subconscious knows what it's doing, but the conscious writer doesn't. And then suddenly like it 
just kind of falls into place and you're like, oh, here it is. Like, and it took a long time and a lot of editing to, to for me to understand that, like, because it was, it, you know, it, I had to shave enough of the fat away to be able to see it. So I, I definitely believe in embracing it whenever I, I can find it. Um, and I, I think that that symbolism often, you know, ties to the thematic concerns of a story. And to me, that also comes back to character problems. So like, to me, it's all of a piece. And if I don't have something for the character to be worried about or interested in, um, then I don't have a story. So I guess they're all sort of branches of the same tree that, that for me, for writing. So, um, you know, I, I, I would never claim that, that story, that some stories are just yarns or whatever, because even stories that purport to be just yarns have some sort of message or underlying philosophy to them because, you know, they, they reflect the worldview of the artist in some way. Um, you know, I, 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 I so, yeah, I, I, I definitely uh, believe in it. And I sometimes just have to trust the process to show me what the, you know, what the symbol is going to be. And I'm not a huge fan of it being too, too on the nose, you know. Um, and I, I feel like we this book really skirts the line in some places, like Margaret helping Harry into that coffin, you know, uh, or or the haunted house, haunted family. But I feel like because it's sort of done in a playful way, hopefully I'm getting away with it. Um, so, yeah, I think I think you got away with it. OK, good. Um, yeah. And speaking of um, reflecting um, it kind of like, you know, the monster suit kind of symbolic of uh, Noah's identity struggles, um, which you talked about him trying on different roles throughout the book and whatnot. And then his issues are kind of reflective of his sister Eunice's problems, too. Yeah, yeah. I, I think for me, a lot of the book the emotional core of the book, you know, nobody in the book is a one-to-one -one with anybody in real life, but I, I think definitely um, in my own life, like I, you know, I've, I've always been sort of socially awkward. There's been a lot of mental illness uh, uh, in my family. So there's always been sort of a, um, a lot of like, I've always kind of compartmentalized and hidden parts of myself. Um, and I think everybody in my family sort of did to some degree or other, you know, as just a way of protecting ourselves, you know, in, in, in tough times. And um, so I thought it was really important to have, you know, uh, to me, it was really resonant to have the, this brother and sister who were both like at war with their true natures and who are sort of uh, pushed apart by the fact that they can't neither of them is quite willing to completely embrace that until the end when finally they both are able to. And that's when the, the, the story's resolution comes, you know, Eunice's looks a lot nicer than Noah's, but Noah in his own way gets this really fucked up version of a happy ending, you know? <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, I, I think dealing with something I really love in stories is when characters are allowed to be bracingly honest with themselves. Like I love that moment in a story whenever a character like finally, finally stops running from who or what they are and just finally admits to themselves, you know, just leans into it. Like, no, this is who I am. Like, I've got to stop lying. I've got to stop hiding. This is just what I am. Um, 
you know, for better or worse. Uh, and so like, to me, it was really cathartic to write the book because even though, you know, I didn't become a monster, you know, a lot of it is about how we're all sort of, we carry these little secret shames and things that we think if people knew these things about us, they wouldn't love us. And the idea of like, you still got to own it. You'll find your people, you know, or your person. Yeah. yeah and it can take a long time for that to happen. Go yes. ahead. Rich. That was just a statement I wanted to make. <laughs> no, I, no, I was going to say the same thing. Um, and, you know, I didn't really think about it because I was so caught up in the story. But throughout, like you said, Noah and Eunice's relationship and how they have, you know, that side of themselves that they keep secret, you know, throughout the end, you know, all the way until the end. And right. another cool kind of interaction with them is that they both have those sides of themselves but they don't even even though they're the same it takes them you know until the end almost or you know the second half of the book really to kind of realize you know their similarities they both have these things that they were hiding and even though they're the closest out of the siblings they still don't even really feel comfortable sharing that with each other until the end even though they kind of know at least as far as uh noah's knowing about eunice yeah yeah i i thank you for saying that yes i i i agree and it it's an interesting thing you know that um it's really you know at core it's a novel about a family that doesn't know how to talk to each other um and it you know Noah and Eunice being like the, I guess the most emotionally raw or prime example at the nucleus of this family. Um, and it, it's sort of interesting how, you know, you can have a close relationship, you know, I think it's very common in friendships between, you know, manly men to like, we're like, you know, things about each other that you just don't talk about. And that's how you keep the peace and the friendship and family can be the same way. But it and in some some cases, like straying away from those things can be healthy. But in a lot of cases, when it comes to like something as big as like your essential nature, it's it it can be really toxic and destructive to hide from those things and to um, hide them from the people that that care about you and that you care about because at that point you know when you're both sort of uh doing sort of uh, emotional brinksmanship you know <laughs> threatening to expose each other um you know that's not good for anybody yeah yeah and like i said i i totally didn't even pick up on that until our conversation but only because i was so wrapped in wrapped up in it but then once you started talking about it i was like wow, you know, they were so close, but they still couldn't even really articulate it until, you know, the end, basically. But um, that was the other thing I liked about A Cosmology of Monsters is none of these, you know, because I always feel like in some books, there's always some characters where, especially like if it's the main protagonist, they feel, they almost feel too perfect, if that makes sense. Like, yes you know there's stuff going on with them but it almost seems like they're held on a higher pedestal and like any any little thing that happens to them it it's relatively minor other than that they seem almost perfect what i liked about this book is all of them pretty much have their own 
you know, secrets and everything else. And it made them that much more realistic. You know, they're not perfect. Even someone like Noah, who throughout the book, you know, like I still relate to him, but like there was a certain part at the end where I was like, wow, I was like, (laughs) you know, I see why he did that. And he, his heart was in the right place, but at the same time, like that's kind of messed up. Yeah, that's the that's the moment uh, where like he makes the decision that probably none of the readers would make, and that's what yeah. that's when he's truly leaned into his what he really is and what he's re- willing to do for his family and his sister in particular. Um, so, I you know, and I agree with the the protagonists. You know, I I wonder. You know, it's something uh, I wonder if it's something to do with like genre fiction or because like TV is full of, you know, like prestige TV, like, you know, The Sopranos, Breaking Bad, whatever, like it's full of very complicated characters who are not always doing the right thing. But I wonder if in like genre fiction in particular, you know, which, you know, with superheroes and, and, you know, Star Wars or whatever, like there is sort of this. Uh, need for the characters, you know, on the part of the audience to be a little bit more pure or a little less, you know, a little more black and white, easier to root for. Um, And I I don't know that I could make that statement definitively, but I, I, I do wonder if that that's part of it because, you know, like, You've got, I don't know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, right? Because you've got the DC superheroes who are pretty much, you know, like Superman's pretty much all good. But then you got like Iron Man, who's a little more complicated, you know, he's an alcoholic and all that. So I don't know. I don't I don't know where that impulse comes from or, or why certain readers. I, I, I wonder if it's the sophistication level of the reader, too. You know, like if there are some readers who only want to root for their characters, you know, the and there are others who want to see their own struggles reflected, you know, whereas there are other people who just want their wishes fulfilled and both are valid reasons to read fiction. You know, it just depends on, I guess, uh, what the reader is after. I don't know. I don't know that I've, does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And, um, like, you know, when I say that, I, I kind of box myself into a corner. I didn't want it to seem like, you know, all of the books are like that because a majority of the horror books I read, you know, they are complex and they have more stuff going on. But so it does make sense. Like I kind of pick it out in certain works that I've seen. And then I'm always curious, like you said, you know, why is it that way? Especially in horror where, you know, a lot of really messed up stuff can happen. It almost seems like that would be the perfect time to utilize you know, complicated characters, but every once in a while, I'll find a book where, you know, the protagonist, there's all kinds of crazy shit happening, and he just seems like, you know, flawless, almost kind of like, you know, the all-American hero, like, there's nothing wrong with me, and, you know, I'm gonna conquer whatever evil it is. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I... uh... I feel like horror for the most part does better than maybe like fantasy or science fiction. Uh, yeah. Don't, don't write me letters, uh, please. <laughs> their audience. But I, 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 and maybe it's just the horror I've been reading versus the fantasy and sci-fi that I've read. You know, maybe I need to dig deeper into those genres to find the more complex stuff. Cause a lot of the horror I've read, 
you know, like S.P. Miskowski, um, you know, her books are really terrific in, in presenting complex female characters, especially. Um, and, of course, Laird Barron, you know, who we've talked about a couple of times already, like, um, you know, his characters, his protagonists can be downright despicable sometimes. Um, so, but, yeah, you would think horror would be the place to do it because, I mean, it's supposed to be about looking our worst fears in the face, right? So why not let the people, you know, uh, be bad sometimes? Maybe there's an element of um, sort of the sacrificial virgin to it or something. I don't know, sort of the final girl or whatever. I don't know. As far as like the, the flawless protagonist. Yeah, but I mean, also, you know, at the same time, you kind of got this, like, with horror, the protagonist is and with crime fiction too really and we talk with Larry Barron a lot about this um it's that they're almost always raw and real and honest in addition to the complexity that a lot of authors bring to them you know yeah yeah I I, I agree I haven't read as much crime fiction I've just started uh to kind of dip my toes in there because Laird Barron has jumped onto that boat and my publicist Abby is a big uh fan of all the uh Norwegian you know crime writers um so I uh, there is definitely some interesting um some I I guess that the phrase I would use is bracingly honest (laughs) uh which which I really like as a reader um like I, I, I like reading about messed up people trying to do good things or, or, you know, trying to prevent other people from doing bad things. Yeah. Yeah. Or messed up people trying to prevent people from doing worse things than what they would do. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a kind of a, like, like David Joy, a, he's a crime author. Um, He writes a lot of that where, yeah, the protagonist may not be the, the coolest nicest guy on the planet but he's a little bit nicer than the guy he's trying to stop (laughs) (laughs) so um let's talk about since we're so close to it and since your book kind of revolves around it in some ways uh halloween yes um i'm gonna guess i know the answer to this but are you a big fan yeah yeah definitely i i don't you know um I grew up in, in Texas in the DFW area. So uh, out here in Alabama, I don't have as, you know, I'm more out in the country. So there's not as much opportunity to celebrate as whenever I was younger. But I still love, you know, the decorations, the, the spirit of it, the just the, you know, the, the general atmosphere it conjures in the culture. You know, the fact that suddenly there are horror displays in bookstores and, you know, um, whenever there usually aren't. Um, that those things are kind of being pushed to the front of the public consciousness that my favorite stuff is suddenly the world's favorite stuff for a month. So yes, absolutely. Big fan. Yeah, I'm a big fan too. Um, Huge fan, actually. I kind of, you know, our house is kind of Halloween-y pretty much 365 days of the year (laughs) and and then just gets really off the chain in October. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I can't think of a more perfect read for Halloween than uh, a cosmology of monsters. It's just custom made for it. 
Thank you so much. That was that that that's one of my big my big hopes. Like if this book has a chance of lasting, like that it if it could get associated with this holiday as sort of like, you know, a, a perennial Halloween read, like that would, you know, be my dream come true for it, to have it tied to my favorite holiday um in in that way. Um, which is a big dream to have, obviously, you know, like that's a that's a tall mountain to climb, but you know, if if it can climb that mountain, that would be, you know, aside from the Stephen King blurb, like the ultimate uh, compliment the book could receive is, is being tied to this holiday. Um, because in my heart, it definitely was. And I, I um, you know, in a lot of ways, it's sort of my love letter to all of that, you know, the disguises, the the fun house, the atmosphere of creeping dread, all of it. Um, so so thank you for saying that about the book. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with uh, Shane, and i I think it I think it will last as you know something people revisit on Halloween. Because when I was reading it, it's it's kind of hard to put it into words, especially because there is some very dark stuff in it. Sure. But when but when I was reading it, there was almost like this comfort level there. I, it, like it's a hard feeling to describe <laughs> it's it's very dark but like when I like I always looked forward to reading it and looked forward to spending time with those characters so I think a lot of readers if they haven't already picked up a copy I feel like they'll probably feel the same way about it I I hope you're right I you know and uh you know, the I, I feel like genre fiction, you know, uh, really usually finds its audience in paperback. So I'm hoping that once we hit paperback and the book's a little less expensive, you know, that that definitely those those readers, you know, unfortunately they won't be able to read it this Halloween, but maybe for next Halloween, you know, people who aren't as inclined to buy a hardcover book, uh, you know, uh, will will find it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I th- I think uh, I think. You'll definitely, because that's one thing that appealed to me. I think as a horror fan, it's almost a requirement that you have to love Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I definitely, you know, I definitely got those vibes from it. And it kind of tied in the one thing that I thought was kind of unique is that when they started their own haunted house thing, it kind of like almost marked the progression of the family, at least to me. Like early on, they were, you know, a lot, they were a lot more close knit when they started The Wandering Dark. You know, it was a fun family project. And then it seems like throughout the novel, it kind of morphs to where they still work on it with each other, but it's different. And, you know, their dynamic is different. And then it even shifts to one point to his childhood friend tried to open it up. And I, I don't know if that was intentional, like using the wandering dark and the haunted house thing to kind of mark their trajectories. But that's kind of how I took it. And I thought it was I thought it was pretty cool. Thank you. Yeah, no, that that was the bit of symbolism that I that I that was intentional from the get go was wanting to see how it sort of changed, grew and fell apart the way the family sort of does at the same time, like how. Um, their financial fortunes kind of go up and down throughout the book. The, the, the wandering dark also changes forms as well. Um, and also it was just a lot of fun to like explore the different iterations of the haunted house to sort of take it from like a backyard haunt to like, 
you know, a per, one of those really high end ones that, you know, you can go to in Dallas or whatever, like the bleed, the cutting edge, I think it's called in Dallas or Sloss Furnace here in Birmingham. And then it becomes kind of like a contrast um, to to the family because it gets more and more glamorous and the family seems to get more and more fucked up as you yep. go. You know? <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> Yeah, which uh, too, this is kind. Of, this isn't, I guess, even really a question, but I like the part where Noah was like scouting their competition. And man, I know that these are real, but I've always lived up north. I lived in Pennsylvania and then New York. But the scene with like the Hell House that like the church put on. Oh, yeah, that that was uh, crazy. And, you know, I don't know if Shane is really familiar with them. And I know they exist, but I've only ever really heard of them in the South. So I didn't know if, like, you could kind of touch on that a little bit and kind of maybe, you know, what inspired you to have that in cosmology. Yeah, because honestly, that scared the hell out of me. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was probably scarier than, you know, the haunted house that they had, they had built. Yeah, um, well, it's, you know, I mean, they they definitely exist in DFW. Uh, um, Shane, I forget, where where do you live? Uh, I'm in Portland. Um, Portland. Okay, so you're on the, okay, gotcha, you're West Coast, you're safe. Yeah, yeah um, I'm pretty safe, I'm pretty safe. I am, I, am a cowboy, I am a Cowboys fan, so I'm kind of screwed there, but. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so yeah, down in DFW, they, they, they definitely exist, and it's part of this whole uh, culture, you know, there, there's also that scene in the book when, when Eunice goes to, describes going to her, you know, friends, uh, her girlfriend's church for the first time, and that's based on a real church and sort of how there's this culture of, of, of tricking young people in by sort of dressing up this really fundamentalist version of Christianity in the clothes of a haunted house or punk rock or whatever, or a, a youth party or whatever. I, you know, I, I got tricked more than once, you know, in my, in my younger years and ended up, you know, wasting a Friday or Saturday night at some church service that I had been told was going to be something else entirely. Um, so, you know, growing up in DFW, uh, I, I felt like it was important to touch on that. Um, you know, I originally wanted to explore a lot of different types of haunted houses in the book, and a lot of that ended up falling by the wayside because it wasn't important to the main story. But I was happy we got to keep the Hell House because that was um, that was pretty meticulously researched, and it was um, it's it's definitely a very real thing. It's uh, I think they still exist, um, and. I think that they're more viscerally upsetting than your average haunted house because your average haunted house wants to spook you, but it wants you to have a good time. And these places want to scare the bejesus out of you or scare the Jesus into you rather, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, by using fear uh, as, as the tactic rather than love or philosophy or whatever, that's the carrot, you know, that they use as hell. Um, Yeah. Fire and brimstone seems to be a particularly southern thing. Yeah, I guess I guess maybe it is. I know that it always made me very angry whenever I was younger, and I think a lot of that is why I ended up, you know, not 
finishing out my 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 adulthood, I guess, as a religious person, even though like my dad was a preacher when I was a kid. He wasn't that sort of preacher. But, you know, just it, all the different religious subculture you're you're exposed to in the South. Um, and honestly, the Dallas Fort Worth area probably is lighter than a lot of the more rural areas in terms of, you know, it, it's, uh, I guess, social liberalness, you know. Um, so imagining what I was exposed to, you know, in Arlington, which is not, you know, it's a pretty big city, uh, you know, it's the biggest city in America without a public transit system, um, which is something they're oddly proud of. Um, so I, it was something, it was something I was, I'm still angry about, I guess, and like definitely wanted to kind of pick a bone with. Um, and the book sort of has, uh, that's something that, that was more present in earlier drafts too, was more of a direct conflict with with Christianity versus this other world of monsters. Um, and some of that is still there, but it's not as central to the story. But like you can see figments of it in terms of Margaret, Noah's mother in the early sections of the book, you know, being a bit more uh, sexually aggressive than a girl in the Church of Christ is supposed to be or, um, you know, Noah's wife, uh, you know, working the meeting his wife while she's working at a hell house. And, you know, um, just I guess me just being angry at a, a very particular part of Southern organized religion, um, you know, so I kind of wanted to, to send it up, but also like show it as it is. Yeah, yeah, and and in a way, I mean, when you think about that, the the whole subject really, but especially when you get to the Hell House, um, is you you could birth so many horror stories in that place, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, if you if you really want to pick a bone, there's all kinds of them to pick, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The 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 cultural insensitivity in those places, the the um, I remember seeing uh, there is actually a documentary about one of the first ones. It's just called Hell House. I think you can still rent it on Amazon or get the DVD. <laughs> and like there's this scene where they're they're um, setting up for like, a, um, you know, the, these are real kids. You know, they're setting this place up with their adult chaperones and they're setting up like a satanic ritual. And they think they've drawn a pentagram and it's a star of David. You know, just stuff like that. It's like it, it, the whole thing is just a horror story start to finish in terms of like how uh, ignorant it is, how hateful it is and how how sincere the people running it are, at least the, the kids who are involved are, because they think they're really doing the Lord's work. They think they're doing a good thing. I'm, I'm sure the adults do too, to some degree, but you know, um, it's the, the heartbreaking thing is seeing how dedicated these kids are and just seeing how they've been poisoned. Um, so yeah, I mean, that you want to, you want to see something scary, go rent that movie. Oh, I can't imagine. You know, cause I didn't, until I read your book, I didn't know there was even such a thing as this. And oh, yeah. that, and I thought it was fictional. And then I got curious and I looked it up and it's like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> no, no, I, you know what? It's funny. Like I said, I, I, I'm not entirely positive, but I think it is more of like a Southern religious thing. The hell houses, but I had, I had always been aware of it, but 
I didn't think it was maybe that prevalent, but then like when I saw it, you know, pop up in the book, I was like, maybe, you know, it is more prevalent than I thought. Like I was always aware of it, but I thought maybe it was just like there was only one of them or something like that. No, they they exist. I don't know if they're still as prevalent, but since the book is sort of set in the time when I was growing up, like uh, just for ease of, of, you know, my, uh, you know, just to make it easier on myself, Noah and I are the same age and grow up in approximately the same area. So I could employ, um, you know, the, that area at that time and write about it authoritatively without having to do a lot of research. And I remember just hearing about those places as they started to pop up. I remember they were showing up in like, you know, newspaper articles or in news reports or my friends would talk about it. I don't know how uh, common it still is, but I know that in the early 2000s when I was sort of in that 18 to 21 window, uh, basically the same age Noah is when he's at the Hell House, um, it was definitely a, a, a cultural force, at least in that area. Yeah, and that kind of touched on one thing. I know in the book, well, you kind of already answered it, but it's kind of almost set in like the same area you grew up, I would assume, right? I know, because I looked up the town name because I wasn't sure if it was like a real town, but I know it's kind of set in that like Arlington area. Yeah. And I was just kind of curious, you know, what what was your experience growing up in that area and you know did you what made you decide to set your you know your first big work there was it more because of like a familiarity or you know is there like do you have a special connection to that particular area that's I I mean I feel like maybe I've got a special connection to it because I lived there from the time I was three until I was 31 basically so it's like 28 years you know I'm only 36 so like there've been eight years of my life that I haven't lived in the Dallas Fort Worth area and in Arlington in particular um, so you know it, it, it there was definitely a sense of um, connection there and it felt like a place uh, that I could you know talk about with an insider's eye, you know, like if I were trying to write about, you know, like, I don't know, like Upper East Side socialites, I'd be at sea, you know, I would only have other novels or whatever to look at to, to kind of see what that looks like, you know, um, same reason Stephen King wrote about blue collar people in Maine, you know, that was his bread and butter, that those are the people he grew up around. And so for me, it was the same thing. And originally it was set in Arlington, but I decided to change it to uh, Vandergriff, which is sort of an inside joke because we had a mayor named Vandergriff and a lot of the stuff around town is named after him. So it's sort of a anybody from Arlington who picks up the book will get it immediately. And that's just for the people in my hometown. And I've, I, I've been told and this is one of the more gratifying things I've heard from from readers, you know, people I went to high school with or whatever, is that it captures the vibe of growing up in that area during that time. Um, and that's something that I didn't even have to work for. I just had to remember, you know, what it was like growing up. Um, and it 
since it dealt, you know, uh, so it, it just, it, it felt right. I guess there was never a sense for me of um, not setting it there once I knew it was going to be a haunted house. I mean, when I thought it was going to be about a youth hostel in New Mexico, I knew I had some more research to do. And that's why I think I put it off for as long as I did. And I'm glad I did because I might not have written cosmology if I'd already written my family business novel. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> um. Sorry, I just I just totally lost my train of thought. Um, your turn, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all good. Um, so yeah, I know I know that cosmology has just come out, but obviously when you pitched it and it was a long time in the making, I know you had mentioned earlier that you have a couple things that you were working on, and you don't have to get too specific, but I was just kind of curious if you're what kind of things you're working on and does it necessarily follow like the same horror path or is it, you know, something a little bit different? Um, one of them is definitely, uh, more on the horror path. You know, it's, um, that one I'm, I'm doing a little bit more research for. And the, the other one, the one that I think if my agent signs off on it, I just sent him an outline, um, will be book two, hopefully, um, is still in that sort of literary genre mashup, but I guess I'd call it, I'd say it leans maybe a little more to fantasy than to horror, although, you know, sort of still that same, what I call suburban Gothic vibe. Um, so hopefully it'll, it'll maintain that same flavor, but, but the genre mashup elements might look slightly different. I mean, there'll still be monsters and stuff in it, but you know, it'll, without giving too much away, I I'd say it has more in common with like, a Lev Grossman novel than maybe Stephen King. Um, so without, uh, without giving too much away, I guess. Yeah. yeah, but that's kind of, that's kind of exciting too. Thank you. Yeah. I, I hopefully, hopefully my agent will agree and, and editors will agree when it comes time to pitch the finished book. Yeah. Cause that's, um, and you know, it's funny because a cosmology, I view it, you know, mainly as a horror story, a more literary horror story, but there's also kind of like these fantastical elements to it. And um, this is actually Shane's point that I'm stealing, but, you know, there's, it's mainly horror and it has a literary bent, but there's also so many other different things going on with it that it's almost kind of like its own little genre and that was totally shane's point but uh i totally agree with him on that <laughs> well yeah and i i really wanted to touch on that so i'm glad you remembered it my uh my memory isn't the greatest right now but yeah i i thought that was you know that was really cool and so that's why um like you said if hopefully your agent's excited about it i think that that's one of the big things with our site that we like is, um, you know, kind of genre mashups and the way they interact with each other. Like we're obviously horror fans first and foremost, but we also love like crime and crime noir and, you know, the way they interact with each other. So I think that's cool that your work with cosmology and the stuff you're working on is kind of like this melting pot sort of thing. 
Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I think that's, you know, that's really where I found my sweet spot as a storyteller was with cosmology, because, you know, this, this isn't the first novel I've written. It's just the first one I published, the first one that was good enough. And it wasn't until I, I, I sort of started leaning into all my influences instead of saying like, okay, I'm going to write a novel that's very literary or, okay, I'm just going to write a pure, like, you know, pulp horror novel, like being like, no, I'm just going to put it all in the pot, like everything. I'm just going to give it everything I've got. And, you know, you calling it its own little genre, like is maybe the best compliment I could get on the book. So thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. That was, like I said, Shane had mentioned it to me and I kind of stole it, but <laughs> that's only because I agreed with him on it. But well, you uh, properly cited your source, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, w- I won't kick your ass, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> but to uh, just another little funny note, I know you had said you had worked as a bookseller at Barnes and Noble. I actually, in college, I worked for the competition, so they went out of business. Barnes and Noble didn't, but <laughs> oh, uh, was that Borders? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, man, I miss Borders. I loved those stores. <laughs> I'm sorry they went out of business. Yeah, I worked there, I think, for like one summer. But, you know, it's kind of interesting that it seems not, you know, everybody, but it seems like a lot of people who are either interested in writing or, you know, are writers or just fans of literature, like how they like there's a lot of different stories you hear about how people got like one of their first jobs was working in bookshops and you know that's kind of what spurred them on yeah yeah I think they're fertile places for the imagination you know I I, like eight years in a bookstore and like I just just by virtue of working there came across so many things I never would have found if I was just walking in as a customer because you know you're shelving all this stuff and a lot of it's stuff I wouldn't have been interested in you know like arts and crafts books could do nothing for me but I discovered a lot of authors that way and found books that I might not have um, and got inspired in ways that I might not have if I just stuck to what I was already interested in or already after like the, the thrill of finding a new author um, you know, especially if it was one you, you know, nobody else had heard of yet either. Like it was always um, something really special and, you know, I wrote my first short story on on the the DL basically, but while I was behind the register, uh, I had a little moleskin that I'd bought from the store, and I wrote my first short story. The first one, um, and it ended up kind of being the the it you know won a prize at my college and sort of started me down the road towards where I am now. Like so. Uh, definitely, I, I owe a lot to Barnes and Noble. Like I met my wife, I wrote my first short story. <laughs> like I definitely, um, I owe a lot to the bookstore, you know? Um, and I'm not surprised to hear that other people do too. They're, they're wonderful. And one of the nice things about touring with this book, you know, Arlington didn't really have any indie bookstores as I've gotten to visit so many great independent stores. I mean, I like the chains too, but getting to see these little indie stores that are, flourishing and that have like really interesting titles in stock not just the big you know New York Times stuff but like stuff that's maybe a little more obscure they actually have like a curated horror section sometimes you know um it's been a real delight and has been invigorating to see people so excited about books 
um, you know, and, and at the small business level and, and the people working there and how much they believe in it, like has really, um, it's been wonderful to see. So I, I'm not surprised to hear that lots of people, <laughs> lots of good people coming out of bookshops and artists too. Oh yeah. Um, sorry. I thought Rich was going to say something. Um, and really when you get to that when you start talking about indies but bookstores authors um like you say artists and whatnot um they're really kind of like you said really really early early on at the beginning kind of spurring the boom that we're experiencing with horror right now um and really in a way they're kind of a good boost i'm not saying that they're the reason you're successful sean <laughs> they're a big part of it <laughs> but yeah they've kind of really brought it back into into the light a little bit and you've got guys like you and mailerman and tremblay and kepness and those people are all you know making a good mark on the on the genre yeah um, yeah the, oh sorry go ahead no that's fine it's just just a comment that makes it makes me happy to see that me, me too. Um, and the if any of the booksellers who I have already met are listening, thank you guys so much. Like they've been uh, so supportive. And really, that's I mean, you know, my publisher and my publicist, like that's that's who they reach out to, like to to help spread the word about the book, because the people in the you know, the the big chains, you know, they can sell a lot of copies of a book, but whenever you're a debut author and you're not already a, a name brand, you know, they're, they're not necessarily going to put you like front and center, you know, the way they would with like Stephen King or Dan Brown or whatever. Um, but having these indie bookstores and, and booksellers who get excited about the book and are hand selling it at that level um, has made a big difference. I think, um, you know, I've, I've, I've seen the difference from store to store sometimes like in terms of, uh, how excited the staff was about the book or if they had like a particular bookseller there who was really in love with it, you know, um, versus places that were happy to have me, but maybe not as excited about, you know, they, they've all been nice and wonderful, but like the, you can definitely tell like when somebody's really excited about it, um, when you get to the store, there, there will be a certain energy and, and you can tell like, these are the people who are moving your book, you know, these are the like this this more than like Amazon or Barnes and Noble or Books a Million, you know. God bless all of them, but the indie bookstores are really uh, the secret sauce, and the publishers know it too. Like they're they're those are the you know those are the people they're reaching out to. So like it's really nice to see you know that the publishers are not forsaking these stores. They know that's where those are the boots on the ground. Those are the soldiers actually selling the most books. I think these days. Aside well, from and, the, the super sorry. songs. No, go ahead. Um, really, that's. Kind of, I wonder if that's intentional, even like at, at the reviewer level, publicists and um, uh, publishers uh, have a tendency when a new book comes out, even from a big publisher, um, to uh, immediately hit all of these reviewers who, are, who have heavy ties with the indie horror community or indie fiction com community you know and it makes me wonder you saying that makes me wonder if they're if that's an intentional thing on their part i think for the good publicists it is like they they you know the good uh publishers publicists like you know i don't know what it looks like at other publishers but at mine like you know they're they're very savvy about you know who 
like what the market is for each type of book, what's the best strategy for launching this book, you know? And I think that my publisher has been, I mean, I have nothing to compare it to, but it feels like they've done this amazing job of knowing like the right people to get the book to who would, you know, be interested in it to begin with and and excited about it because you know it's it's not necessarily a book for everyone like it's not like a four quadrant book but the people it's for it's really for and they've they've really done a good job i think of finding those people uh, yeah and those people are the people like you say who are going to spread the word and get to get the book out there in the long run especially with a, a debut and um so much goddamn competition Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and fall is the busiest time in the publishing season. I didn't know that. So that's when all the publishers put out their biggest books. Like, you know, my book came out, I think, a week after Stephen King's The Institute and Margaret Atwood's The Testament. So, like, you know, right. I, I thank God the yeah. indies have uh, liked the book and people like, you know, you and Rich are, are, are excited about it because otherwise I would have just drowned immediately, I think. <laughs> yeah at least uh at least in your heart anyway <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh yeah sean we we really we really did love this book i know i can't speak for shane but it's definitely one of my favorite reads if not the favorite and um yeah it was it was really great to have you on the show and I guess I'll just hit you with one more question unless Shane has one, but I like to ask this sometimes and I know that it might be, it might not be something you're thinking about since this is your first book and it just came out recently. But like, if you had, if you were able to have like a cosmology of monsters be either a movie or a TV show, do you have, you know, who would you imagine playing, you know, some of those key roles? I don't know if you've thought about it, so I'm sorry if I put you on the spot, but I always like to ask that question. Oh, no, I've thought about it. I, I, um, I mean, I kind of saw, you know, Carrie Coon from The Leftovers as Margaret. She was also in season three of Fargo. Um, she's got that great, like, kind of chilly uh, air, but still like a lot of strength and warmth underneath. Um, I, I think that's my number one fan casting pick. Like um, I'm trying to think of who else for the other, I can't really, I, I'm trying to think now um, for Noah, I guess it would depend on what age you were going to go for since he changes ages throughout the book. I guess if you're going for adult Noah, I really liked uh, John Harrison who um, he was on the newsroom. He was also in 10 Cloverfield lane. He was the third person in the house with John Goodman and Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Um, okay. Uh, you know, maybe not like a, a, a name, a, a household name, but he's a, a really good actor and he's got like a, a, a real like nice guy energy that I think you, you kind of need from Noah, you know, to, to follow him through some of those, uh, the, those darker moments. Um, I can't really, I don't know of anybody else off the top of my head. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. But yeah, I, I had seen the newsroom, so I I like that show and uh, the casting choice. But yeah, it's, it's no big deal because, you know, when I asked that question, I said I like to ask everybody. Yeah. I wasn't even taking into account the shifting timeline. So yeah, that would be kind of difficult, you know, to yeah. try and... <laughs> 
Yeah, that. Um, I mean, I can't talk about it too much, but that is some of the conversation that's happened. I've gotten, I've been fortunate enough to get to talk to some media people about the possibility of doing something with the book. And that is always the starting place of the conversation is like, where do you, you know, which part of the story do you start on? If it's a TV show or if it's a movie, how do you condense it or whatever? And it's yeah. it's interesting because it offers a lot of different um options i guess to 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 you know filmmakers and tv people so i'd be fascinated to see you know i've i've really enjoyed getting to have the different conversations and see the different um possibilities so hopefully there will be something to report on that at some point um uh, i'm not allowed to talk too much about it yeah. but but that yeah it's 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 interesting and exciting and um mm -hmm a very fun process, you know, as the creator of the work to see how other people would interpret it. Yeah, definitely. And we totally understand that, you know, you can't say too much about it, but uh, I really hope that, you know, whether it's a movie or a TV show that something uh, comes out of it. Cause like I said, I really love this book and I know Shane feels the same way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, when you do have big news to announce to us eventually, Sean, because I think you will, um, do do message us and let us know. We'll make sure to tell everybody in the entire world. Yes, yes, I will do that. And and thank you guys so much for the kind words about the book and for having me on. This has been a blast. Yeah, uh, it was our pleasure, Sean. Absolutely. I hope this is the beginning of a long, long and lasting uh career of talking to each other about your future product projects me too is there uh, anything else you'd like to share with uh, your readers sean before we let you go you know i can't think of anything i guess um you know just the usual if you have read the book and you liked it um you know please 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 leave it a, a good reading you know rating on on the sites that matter like amazon or goodreads um, preferably five stars because as Joe Hill said on Twitter earlier today, those aggregator algorithms have no room for subtlety whatsoever. So to get the book in front of, you know, more people's eyes, um, uh, and it, even if you're not comfortable publicly rating it, you know, just hit me up on Twitter and let me know what you thought, you know, as long as you're nice, <laughs> you know, but um, I, I've, I've heard, you know, for, to the readers who've already reached out to me to tell me how they felt about the book. Thank you. And to anybody who, has read it but hasn't said anything i'm out there and uh believe me all of your favorite authors are desperate for any word of praise they can get and the thing about amazon and goodreads man is if you just go leave a star rating and say i really liked it you did it you did a huge favor for somebody yes absolutely i try to do that um you know, I, I don't do like long text reviews, but I, I, I do try to make a point of, of marking everything I read uh, on there, you know, whether it's something big or something obscure. But especially for like the, the indie press authors, um, you know, I'm not with an indie press, but a lot of my favorite writers are like that. It can be like a, they can make a huge, huge, huge difference. Yeah. So, uh, Sean, like I said, uh, Shane and I really enjoyed your book. Um I'll be ha we'll have a review of it shortly on Ink Heist and we want to thank you again for coming on the show. It was a great time talking with you and hopefully we can have you on again soon whether it be when you have your next book out or, you know, any other time. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Just uh, hopefully we'll have an occasion to do it real soon. 
All right. Anything you'd like to add, Shane? Oh, you're kidding, man. I keep blabbing and blabbing and we're going <laughs> to go all night long. <laughs> all right. So, so go ahead. No, that's, that was it for me. It's good talk <laughs> to you, Sean. Yeah, um, have, have a good night and a great weekend. Thank you. You too. Thanks again. Yeah, have a great night, Sean. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Stop!